There we go. That's going. Or is that? Oh shit, it's hosting Hassan. Oh, it's no longer hosting Hassan. Sorry, guys. Sorry for any of the teens, any of the young Zoomer child soldiers who are enjoying Hassan on our feed. It's me now. Hassan's, uh, Hassan's weird uncle, I guess. That's me. <sighs> there will be no sound complaints today. I've got my thing on there and I've made peace with everything else. It's finally getting chilly out. And that's going to be a storm this weekend, apparently. Storms are coming. Ah. Oh. Bodegas. Boys. Girls. Gather around. Let me tell you about bodegas. They're just magical places where you can go at any time of night to acquire goods. Foodstuffs. Basic household necessities. I know. I know, those of you who live anywhere near a 24-hour CVS might be agog at this, but yeah, it's true. Ah, uh, yes. Every, this, we were talking yesterday about how there's these cycles, these, these, these discourse cycles that reemerge. We got to drag the clat. Another one just happened, too. Just the clat, like I was talking about David Foster Wallace, the classics in general now being dragged by a bunch of YA people. I always find that funny because it's called Young Adult, but none of the people involved in any of it, writing it, reading it, or talking about it, are young or adult. They are old babies. They are old children. They are like 30-plus emotionally stunted, uh, uh, emotion, uh, intellectually uh, gnomish kid. I mean, they're children. They're immature. And that's why they read and write stuff for kids exclusively because they are emotionally and intellectually children. I don't really know why that should be considered um, elitist or uh, hostile or anything. It just seems like a recognition of, of, of the dynamic at play there. Anyway, so you've got dragging the classics for being having not enough wizards in them. You've got David Foster Wallace being dude bro. Steely Dan, and then of course another one popped up, New York, and it's and it's uh, it's Eustace Tilly like disdain for the rest of the country. Uh, and I get it, I get it on all sides. I certainly understand the hostility to New York, uh, especially because honestly, I think more than anything, it stems from the fact that the United States is a country where you are only worthwhile to the degree that you are a success, right? And because of its position in global finance and media, New York is where successful people go. So if you're not there, how successful can you really be? I don't think that necessarily everyone thinks that, but I do think that it's a thing that motivates this sort of weird hostility. But of course, the other thing is the genuine <coughs> overcompensating parochialism of New York, mostly by transplants, who are trying to justify the fact that they're spending a zillion dollars to live like animals. With basically no real difference 
in quality of life to any other major city other than it being worse. And specifically during coronavirus, during COVID, a time when any city, certainly New York, is a ridiculous joke to be living in. Because you're just cooped up for no reason. It has no benefits to it, but it still costs the same. It's chumpish. You're a chump. And so you have to do things like decide that the Bodenga experience is some sort of spiritual thing. The, one of my favorite moments in recent film was in the Harley Quinn movie, when there is a five-minute sequence of someone lovingly creating a bacon uh, or an, um, an egg sandwich at a bodenga. Because Harley Quinn, she loves her sandwich at her favorite bodenga. And you watch that scene and you go, oh, this is meant specifically for the very narrow trance of people who watch this shit online. Or who, like, who live within this bubble of media people who all talk about their, who justify to themselves their ridiculously expensive existences. So it's just, uh, it's self-loathing reaching across the aisle, which is all, like I've said, that's all culture and politics, same thing, are. It's, it's uh, competing, res it's, resent it's mirroring resentments. Pure resentment on both sides. New Yorkers resenting that they live in a, sh in a shithole that's supposed to be the center of the world, and everyone outside of it who doesn't live there resenting that either they're not there at some level, if they've really bought into the notion of, you know, virtue is flowing from success, or uh, it's undeservingness as, as the place that determines these things, as, as, the, as the defining referent point for success or glamour or money or anything. Power. Ah. Uh. And so that's what you always end up seeing with these things is one concentration of resentment burbles forth. Like that person who did the viral tweet about what do you, peop what do you people call it where you can get all these things at uh, one in the morning? Uh, she lives in New York under a pandemic. It's a misery. But there's the bodenga, which you yokels don't have. Or if you do, it's not the same. That's just my resentment of people living somewhere else. And then it hit the resentment of people who are sick of New York for one reason or another. Either the, and they resent it, its status uh, one way or the other. They think it's undeserved or they think it's deserved and then it's just a reflected self-loathing for not having attained it. And then they get to fight each other over it. It's great. It's a lot of fun. We're all having fun. We're all having a lot of fun. And that's the important thing. Uh, so yes, it's nice to see that all the cycles are completing themselves. Everything is continuing to go. That nothing has ever learned. Nothing has ever changed. The cast of characters shifts a little bit. But largely through just people washing out of the cycle, not really realize, not transcending it. <sighs> Why do I call it a bodenga? That's because Felix, who is a very resentful New Yorker, not, not, he has like got both because he hates and resents New York like someone who's not from there, but he also lives here. So he has both sets of resentments in one. 
which is tough. And so he hates bodega culture more than anyone, and, and he makes fun of it by calling it a bodenga. Felix is a walking contradiction. That's true. Partly true, partly fiction. Everything is a paradox. Ain't that the truth? Everything is a bundle of contradictions that must be resolved. Oh, I got a new one today. I got a Poland Spring. I thought I'd try this pomegranate lemonade. Not bad. I'll probably stick with black cherry, but as a, as a change of pace, not bad. Now, I have, this, is from the, this is from the fridge. It's nice and cold. I don't think we're going to do a series on Iran-Contra, specifically. I mean, we'll probably talk about it a lot when we talk about, when we do uh, episode two of the Bush episode, uh, or um, um, episode two of the Bush series, because uh, the same way that Nixon was the, white, the executive uh, branch uh, point man, like the White House point man for um, the Bay of Pigs, George H.W. Bush had the same role uh, with Iran-Contra. Him and Oliver North were the ones running it. Uh, and so we'll talk a lot about his involvement in it. In being a fucking mega kilo drug trafficker. <laughs> while telling people that winners don't use drugs. While having the DEA entrap a 17-year-old kid into selling them some crack outside of the White House so that he could hold it up in front of the camera. And then the kid gets 10 years. One of the most despicable little moments of the Bush administration, this motherfucker, this is not a joke, in order to ramp up the war on drugs and increase uh, the carceral state, he wanted to have a, uh, a speech where he laid out the case for a more punitive uh, approach to drugs. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to hold up some crack that had been purchased within sight of the White House or something to prove how pervasive the problem was. Only problem was, for them... White House, that there was nobody who really sold there. There were not open-air drug markets within sight of the White House, even then, even in the high-crime early, eight, late 80s. So what the DEA did is they, they, they got, a, they got a, uh, in touch with a dealer uh, in Anacostia, I think, and they had him come to like, the, the, uh, the reflecting pool or something and then arrested him. And then he did 10 years on that shit. And, he, and Bush got to hold up that crack in front of the camera and throw more people like that kid in prison while moving that shit into the country to be sold in the first place. I mean, it's, it's astounding. And his, we'll talk a lot about his role in Iran-Contra, the Iran-Contra more broadly. And although, you know, I think the, for the most part, we're, it's, I think we'll stick to broad strokes. I mean... But his specific involvement and the specifics of the drug operation, I think, are going to be very, very uh, well investigated. So, so we will be talking about Iran-Contra in the next Bush episode.
I don't know when Bush Cut 2 is going to come out. My guess is that we'll record it sometime next month to release because it doesn't have a. It's not topical, so I think we might re, we might do it early to bank for the holiday season. Although, who the fuck knows if there's even really going to be a holiday season this year? It does seem like everything is in this weird perpetual state, even now, of of stasis. I hate to show you guys my hairline there. I know it's pretty traumatic. I should put a uh, put a trigger warning on. Uh. So uh, I wanted to say something about JD Vance, uh, and not not him specifically, but sort of him as as an example of sort of the, the, the new man that we've created in America. And not just a man, or even exclusively a man, but in the sense that the Soviets were trying to build a new man, a new socialist man who, who would transcend the, 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 the restrictions of what we, in bourgeois society, uh, convince ourselves as human nature. And this is, like, that is the, that is the, the metaphysical uh, battle within, or uh, that is the metaphysical uh, alchemy that communism seeks to uh, engage. And I think that, that they weren't wrong to imagine things that way. I mean, they were wrong to think that they could happen within uh, a, anything other than a global context. Uh, and I think the fact that when the Soviet Union collapsed, it collapsed into uh, rapine and, and uh, kleptocracy proves that they didn't create a new man. Uh, but they did recognize that a new man needed to be built in order to live communally. Uh, to be broke to 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 find value uh, in unalienated labor, of not expecting the 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 fruits of one's production to be the consumption of it directly, but rather the the uh, enjoyment of a social existence that uh, what allowed them to freely express their their. Of creative drive, their animal spirits, without having it stripped away and then re-given to them in, in a reduced form, in the form of a, of a wage and, and a consumption uh, uh, and access to a consumption economy. Well, they didn't do that. But meanwhile, what was happening in the free world and in Russia too, and and eventually all barriers being broken was the creation of uh, a new capitalist man, even out of the, the, uh, the clay of modern man, like 19th century man, which was already uh, being you know, uh, warped and buckled by the, the hyperspeed of capitalist social change. Uh, but what the last 40 years specifically have done has created a new capitalist subject, a true homo economicus. Uh, a, the, the, the people that they made up in those textbooks, uh, the people, the, communi- the, 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 the evil mirror image of the, the imagined uh, transformed human of communism, the, the, the antichrist version. Uh, and that being is one who sees all relationships as transactional, who defines all things uh, as to have a market value, 
Uh, and that's not, you know, that's not something that is traditionally thing, a way people have believed because we live socially, we have lived socially, and that existence of social bonds, by definition, means uh, non-marketized bonds because you can't put a price on that shit. Like, there's a reason that you can't go to the pawn shop and get the sentimental value on your items because it only means something to you. Well, that idea, that idea that there is a value, an emotional value, a bond to anything or anyone that can transcend the market, which has been, you know, part and parcel to social existence for the entirety of humankind, we are now in the process of replacing with a fully transactional human being who has no connections to anything that cannot be quantified in, if not in dollars, in a crude calculus of uh, advancement, personal advancement uh, versus personal uh, uh, demerit. Like what everyone we know and everything that is in the world is to be used to our advantage or to be ignored to prevent disadvantage. And that we build around that the words like love and hate and uh, you know the economy and politics and good and bad. But, but at base, what had been a social relationship with a transcendent definition to the person who felt it to a fully uh, exchangeable uh, value. And obviously it's not happening, it hasn't happened fully. We still have the remnant feeling that we should have, uh, that there is something other than our benefit or a dollar amount or to a person or an item. And we're getting there because our time is being abstracted away from us. First, it happened geographically, but now, thanks to the internet, first, first television and now the internet, we are stripping from the days of our lives the chance to even have an emotionally freighted engagement with another person by replacing time with people with time with screens, broadly understood. And what that has created, along with, that's just the technological part of it, the broader part of it is creating a culture whereby precarity is so uh, deeply felt and uh, the safety net, uh, non-marketized social interactions are so few and far between that we essentially can't afford to do anything other than assign value to our relationships if we want to get ahead. So those things combined are creating a new man. It's creating a, a, a capitalist new man. And J.D. Vance is par excellence one of those. Another one, and I want to, I want to draw this contrast to talk about how in many ways these two people who seem separate and or seem very different and to come from different backgrounds are in, I think, 
And obviously, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speculating on a hypothesis here, and this will all like, end up looking like character assassination, but, you know, if I'm wrong, I'll apologize. Uh, but I'm just talking about, like, looking from the outside at the contours of their careers and lives and writing, uh, is uh, Gia Tolentino. I feel like they're both perfect exemplars of this new type of person. And like I said, this person, it's no one's fault that they turn into this. It's how you end up responding to a, a life and a body that you did not choose. And we can, only, we can never really judge anybody. The decisions they make. So there's a, only a, a, so much that you can blame anyone for anything. But I do feel like Gia Tolentino and, and J.D. Vance were both Americans who came into a world where there is a value system and there is a yardstick for human happiness and they had an ability to navigate it. From a young age, they knew they did. They went to school and they found out that unlike some of their other peers, that they could pay attention and give back what the teacher had given them. And they had an awareness that doing that would lead them towards what was broadly understood throughout the entire culture, including everything their parents ever told them, or the world around them ever told them, would be the good. Good. A, 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 a goodness that you have to have to build any greater goodness on top of. The first slab of the fucking Maslow's hierarchy. And they uh, went through the ideological sorting mechanism that constitutes applying through the to the applying your mind to the educational system that we have, and came out of it going to college and going there and experiencing the full measure of uh, the rule book for success in life, uh, which by that point. They wouldn't have gotten there if they hadn't made this decision. Far back along the way of moving along this trajectory, they decided that they needed, even if they didn't want to, they needed to treat everyone as fungible and every relationship as fungible if they were going to succeed. And the difference between them, the, 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 the difference in... The reason, the reason that one of them came out and became a uh, journalist, a left-wing writer and memoirist, and the other uh, became a Republican hedge fund guy and like quasi-political operative, uh, is that one of them grew up a, of course not the only reason, but like the structure that made all of the subsequent reasons happen in the first place is that she grew up in, uh, as the child of wealthy immigrants uh, who were actual, no-joke human traffickers in that they, were, uh, they operated a business that had Philippine, uh, Filipinos who wanted to teach in the United States uh, would help, help them in the process of gaining the paperwork to do so and then moving them through. And it was uh, a... It was like a more high-class, politer version of the coyote system that gets uh, immigrants across the, or uh, immigrants, or emigrants, or 
migrants, sorry, migrants across the Mexican border. Uh, it involved confiscation of passports and, and, and ill treatment in, in barracks-like housing and accommodations. And it afforded her a very, very, very successful life, very wealthy. But she was also a, a, uh, a female, which rendered her subject to like a, a patriarchy, as she discovered in her, in her, the political awakening that comes with acquiring an understanding through the, the cultural, through the educational, uh, uh, mental structuring that tells you, you know, who's responsible for all the bad things. Well, she's female, and the other is she's non-white. She's she's Asian, and the the child of immigrants who are, of course, the, the most uh, um, besides uh, you know Black Americans, sort of the most stigmatized minorities are racialized. Uh, racialized immigrants because of their tenuous status here in America, legal and social. And so, in making her career as a uh, writer, she mined that childhood, those experiences, to create a narrative whereby her parents were these eager strivers who had to negotiate the morass of American racism in order to succeed. And that gave her ideas about how racism and ethnic uh, and uh, hostility to immigration in this country were contributing to, to uh, human misery, like the human misery she knows her parents were involved in, although she never said that in her memoir. Uh, and that turns her into a liberal Democrat. Now, J.D. Vance is a white boy, uh, a, and a poor white boy that, or at least poorer than, uh, than our stereotype of a, of, a, of a white male childhood in this country. The lower half. Uh, and as he acclimatizes through the educational system and finds out what's going on, where the bad things are, he gets he why uh, why things are the way they are. Who's responsible for what? You know, forming the, the rudiments of a political consciousness, he finds out that there is an explanation for why things are bad, and the bad guys are white guys like him. They are white guys by definition. They are either rich white guys responsible for economic oppression or poor white guys responsible for racism and racial oppression. Well, what good does that do you if you're a young striver looking to get ahead? You gonna apologize for yourself all day? Why would I want to do that? Fuck that. Instead, what he did is he mined his family background to show how his uh, how he was able to overcome like the tainted association, and in so doing, explain to audiences of uh, educated, wealthy liberals and conservatives. Who are trying to understand their fellow citizen, much like they're Reed Gilletolentino to try to understand the exotic uh, immigrant experience, this exotic uh, lower class white experience. Uh, JD gets to treat his family as marionettes to prove a point to them about how their failings are personal, and his success, by definition, is also personal, and that he is virtuous. And, but that, that 
that I, that argument, which personalizes blame, it doesn't have as easy a uh, adherence to the liberal, uh, the more sophisticated, fully articulated uh, liberal collegiate description of oppression in this country. Uh, but enough for him to, uh, so that makes him a, a, a Republican so, and, and, uh, and a bootstraps guy. But both of them are people whose fundamental, uh, everything they say and have done in their careers has been driven by a fundamental uh, a transactional relationship with all around them, where you turn your family uh, into just grist. problem we have now is that everybody who emerges from these structures, everybody who, everybody who is able to get a voice, to be able to be heard, because the thing about America is, is that the, 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 mo the most oppressed among us are silent. Spivak, we can answer the question, does the subaltern speak? I don't know. But the subaltern does not tweet, not in a way that enters what we consider the political consciousness. It's all filtered through uh, spokespeople and media figures, uh, who uh, many of whom are able to act as gatekeepers between the two, two halves, the, 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 the college-educated, politically engaged half, and those overwhelmingly among the poorest of us uh, who, who are not part of this conversation. I mean, they're tweeting, right? But they're tweeting about their own shit. They're not part of the political discussion. They're not part of the discourse. Unless it's filtered. Unless it's been like collated and translated. Because of the, the failure for people to be able to imagine outside their own, their own bubble. It means that there's a self-consciousness that permeates all attempts to engage and renders them uh, impossible. And yeah, they've never been part of the conversation, but and really all we're seeing now is just how, how stark that is. Because we have this social media that's hypothetically supposed to connect all of us, and yet it reproduces the same uh, uh, hierarchies of structures as, as our society itself. Because if you're really struggling in this country, uh, you just do not have the luxury. Not going to say privilege, because that's bullshit, but the, the luxury of engaging with politics as a meaningful category of life, because why would you waste your time? Because it doesn't do anything. Your lived experience tells you it doesn't do anything. The thing that tells us that it does something is books, and tweets, and TV shows, and our friends and family, and our parents. Not our lived experience. Just, just a, a translation of that, a baffling of that, a, a, a mystification of that, that we engage socially. Oh man, somebody, I mean apparently they, they're not going to do it now but because people got mad, but the very fact that they tried to me it's another piece of the of the mosaic 
that you could just title RIP subtext. There's you can't you cannot do satire of this moment. So if people don't know this story, in LA, Union Center, Union Station is the big train station in downtown. And it is also right now one of the main COVID testing centers that they have. And a lot of COVID testing centers have been overwhelmed lately, as you could imagine, because COVID is as bad as it's ever been in this country and getting worse by the day. And the LA city government issued a permit for a uh, gender-swapped TikTok cast remake of Can't Buy Me Love to film there and close it to the public and close it close the te the COVID testing site. So not only are you having a situation where you're allowing the shooting of this thing to happen, 170 people running around this enclosed building at the height of the pandemic, they are they are critically reducing the city's infrastructure for COVID response in doing so. Now, if that does not tell you everything you need to know about the death spiral that capitalism is in this country because of its complete control of government. Like, obviously, government is, and, and uh, government is inextricable from capitalism, but it serves, the reason it's there is it does serve a function of alienating some of the uh, decision-making away from self-interested individual capitalists so that you can coordinate and reduce. You can't eliminate because capitalism is inherently wasteful and destructive. Uh, and at least reduce the fucking waste so that in times of crisis, for example, you can coordinate response uh, in such a way that prevents collapse. That's why after uh, the there was a panic in uh, economic. There was a Wall Street panic in 1907 that nearly brought the entire United States government's or the United the entire United States economy to collapse. The thing that stopped it is that J.P. Morgan locked a bunch of the biggest bank owners in a, in his library until they agreed to a private bailout of the American economy of the of of the in, in the form of bailing out the, the the stock market. And that was such that was such a close call and totally dependent on one guy essentially having the wherewithal individually to alienate himself from the mere logic of, of short-term profit that he could override that and everyone else. You can't guarantee that's going to happen every time. So they created the Federal Reserve to do that at that level. And uh, similarly, and, and what we have now is a situation where all the things that were built up since the Federal Reserve System, specifically after the New Deal, to steer the ship have been all torn away and stripped and sold for parts because the, you've got to get money somewhere. You've got to replace that profit that keeps going down because we're not doing anything anymore. We're, we're, we're circulating money around. The U.S. economy at this point is just purely about investing. It's about spinning water wheels for no reason. The reason that Uber and all these other companies that have never made any money and in fact are so in the hole that even if they monopolized their respective markets, it would take decades to even come close to making up for the fucking profits that the, the money has already been wasted, that's already been lost. The reason they're going to keep giving them money, it's not necessarily that they don't recognize that it's, a, it's, it's good money after bad, it's that there's nowhere else to put it. There's nowhere else to invest money. 
other than in uh, like recreating 19th century uh, uh, and current Indian practices of personal like servant servitude. Like all of the Uber shit is just creating through the bilateral contractual technological relationship of a contractor and a, and a, a contractee. Uh, old feudal relate, old feudal servant bonds. That's the techno feudalism we keep talking about. And part of that means is that the government is completely controlled, completely controlled, so that they can't even recognize any more than the capitalist can, the individual capitalist can, that in the even just for their own good, they need to fucking pull up the goddamn nose of the fucking plane. Hey, yes, we got a day. We got uh, we got this shot for uh, she's all that gender swap TikTok show. We got it. Congratulations. That's gonna net your company. What? I I, I bet a good uh, ten grand in uh, Netflix royalties or whatever the fuck. Meanwhile, you have exacerbated the spread of a disease that is destroying and undermining the very fucking economy that this entire city is based on. The movie theaters, as we know them, have closed. And yes. We already have streaming, but there's going to be a bottleneck there as you transition from one to the other, and a lot of money is going to get shed. If you want, if there's any hope of keeping that industry afloat, it is in tamping down on COVID as much as possible. And yet, the short-term interests of some assholes who wanted to shoot a guy taking his glasses off and revealing that he's actually hot the whole time, and then they do a choreographed dance dance move to. Fatboy Slim at the train station that is supposed to call back to the choreographed dance number uh, from the end of the original She's All That. And you have, you got that. Congratulations. And in exchange for that, the you have further doomed everything. Unless, the only reason this makes sense is if the idea of intervening in any of the bad stuff is a fiction. And that the thing that separates those on the inside and the outside is not that they're just chained to the profit motive so much as they are chained to the profit motive and also cognizant that because they're chained to the, the fucking mast, there's no stopping any of this. There's no controlling COVID. Therefore, there are no more movie theaters. Oh, well, might as well get this fucking shot in. And that is what's going on. Perhaps, 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 perhaps. Like the thing that throws all of our models of self-interest, even short-term self-interest into a tizzy, is the question of how self-consciously black-pilled are our elites? How much have they looked into the fucking uh, uh, anus of Satan? How many of them have gotten their own personal Ned Beatty speech where the reality of it is capitalism and barbarism, or socialism and not barbarism. You, if you want to be on top of this system, it will collapse. Do you want to not be on top and, and see what's behind door number two? Which, in your heart, you don't think is possible. Because remember, these people are fully ideologically uh, 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 conditioned. Whereas they don't think that the alternative to capitalism exists. So it is this. It is this and barbarism. It is barbarism. So, do you want to be the chieftain? Do you want to be in the castle? Or do you want to be sucking fucking pig shit uh, in, in the fields? And they have made the choice. 
them and their kids are going to be on the top of the fucking stick. Everybody else is going to have the shit of the stick. Because if it's if, if, if all this really requires is for them to just remove one layer of self-conscious ideology, the layer of capitalism actually is for the good of humanity. Capitalism actually makes everybody better off. Uh, every uh, it's free shoes. It's the Milton Friedman fairy tale stuff that they hoodwinked everybody else with, and that only a few of them ever really believed. But I think even now, I I think at this point, even they have have let the the scales fall. And what they've seen is the reality of, oh, okay, no, never mind. It doesn't make everybody anything, everything better for everybody. In the long run, it actually makes things very bad for everybody but a very few. But I'm one of them, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to stay there. And if I want to have some sort of ethical reason for this, well, what about my kids? What about my family? What about the people I love? Don't I have a responsibility to them? If it's all the same, if we're going down anyway, shouldn't I try to save my family? Shouldn't you pull your family out of a burning car before you bur pulse anybody else out? Isn't that a responsible moral thing to do? That's why the only thing that's going to break this up is, is an eruption from without. And, and by uh, working class organs of power to disrupt the existing ones. They can't be taken over from within because within, everyone within them, everyone within them has, has I think, internalized a lot of this. getting chilly out. Damn. Ooh. Ooh. Shit, executive outcomes is coming back? The Pinkertons are rolling in it? Uh, yeah, no. We're, we're gonna, it's New Gilded Age, we gotta get the gun thugs back. Baldwin Feltz, Blackwater. Uh, gonna fill the crack. As the state collapses, it'll fill the craps. Uh, it'll fill the fill the gaps. Fucking Pinkertons, man. Supposedly, Alan Pinkertons thwarted an assassination attempt against John, uh, against Lincoln uh, when he was headed towards his inaugural. Well, what the fuck? Where the fuck were you on April 15th, you dumb motherfucker? Yeah, the Pinkertons are apparently also, in addition to getting staffed up as, as security for especially urban areas, a lot of domestic unrest, they're also creating these executive uh, catastrophe contingency packages where high net worth individuals can essentially get a, uh, uh, like a medic alert bracelet where if the, the mob shows up, to the compact to the front doors or something they will they will be able to crash them out with a team of operators and extract them to a prepared remote hardened location like a bunker type deal 
And in addition to that, the craziest one is that last year or the year before, there was a, uh, I think a Honda or Toyota executive, Hyundai, one of the big Japanese automotive companies, there's a, uh, the chief, the, the CEO was uh, under house arrest on uh, a bunch of uh, finance crime charges, I think like embezzling and stuff, I'm not sure. Uh, and he was, all, but he was also, he was like a, um, he was also a, a Lebanese citizen. And he hired some fucking Blackwater type guys to uh, sneak him out of the country on a private plane uh, and then get him to first Istanbul and then cut out to another private plane to Lebanon where he couldn't be extradited. They literally just, they just said, yeah, no, I'm above the law, literally. Nissan, yeah, that was it. So that's like, the future is here, you know? There's nothing, there's nothing that you could imagine that is not already in pupil prefigurative form happening right in front of us. Now, of course, these, there's a lot of them though. Not all of them are terrible. Some are good prefigurative, they could be prefigurative. It all depends on which ones we water, which ones we allow to eat after midnight. Carlos Gosen, that was it. It's, so I guess he's just still chilling in Lebanon, right? That would have been funny if he'd gotten blown up in that uh, ammonium ex uh, explosion. Uh, somebody asked if the Whiskey Rebellion was a proto-working-class rebellion. Not really, because you got to remember, these are all smallholders now. We're talking full-on yeomen. These subjects who were the hypothetical, like the uh, hypothetical subject of this constitutional order that was coming into being were these guys. Uh, but part of that was that they had this, this notion of liberty, of being ungoverned, that was... Uh, that was only viable in the context of yeoman farming, which in those parts of the country, north, uh, Western Massachusetts and New England, that's where that model was born because that's where it was most viable. Like the land was good enough to grow stuff on, but not good, but not that good. It was, it was, it was, it was good enough for you to grow crops for yourself and family and, and a surplus, but you couldn't have plantation agriculture, you couldn't have large-scale capital-intensive agriculture in that part of the, of, the, of the continent. What you could have was a small farm that could produce a surplus, and which would allow for the exchange of surplus for finished goods, and, the, and then perhaps uh, uh, for more purchase of more land, that allowed for an idea of a self-sufficient uh, uh, subject who was would be essentially a uh, for whom a state would essentially be redundant because the market transactions would regulate every part of his economic life and social life. That's where the libertarian idea comes from. And like obviously the, the way that the Whiskey Rebellion went, the, the, vict the victory of, of federalism over it, it, uh, it, you know, it was a victory for the Hamiltonian administrative state that was going to take these freemen and, and, and uh, lash them 
and, and, and discipline them with, with, uh, with taxation and then later with, uh, with mortgages and, and, and liens and, and things like that. But in the context of creating a, a modern political subject. Because the thing about capitalism is it's necessary because you have to grind through these social forms. They're not going to, uh, and, and more importantly, it's not even a choice. It's inherent. When, you, when, 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 uh, when the, the colonies got connected to the dynamo of, of the British, uh, of British industry, which is gonna start the crank of Wallenstein's world system as it wends its way around the, con the continents. Uh, the, the intensification of, 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 of trade intensifies the need for alienating and intervening mechanisms of bureaucracy, both state and private. And that means alienating uh, liberty away towards a center. And the thing that pulled away from that process in America was the emergence of this alternative economic model, this alternative production model in the South. That is where, why you were able to, you saw this early contradiction because that was the central contradiction of the colonial project or the American project, post-colonial. So it had two models of capitalist production. They were both capitalist, but obviously there is a significant difference between smallholding farming as the, uh, our agricultural, uh, of agricultural staples as the, as the, as the, uh, as the model. Uh, of, and when I say model, I mean the, uh, the model of resource end of this. The model in the cities is the same as it is everywhere. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the maw that chews up all those things. It eats all the food and takes all of the, 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 uh, all of the materials. There are two ways to fit, get this maw fed. You had the smallholder model, and then in the south you had the plantation. Over time, the plant, as, as the ability to uh, extract profit due to uh, the expansion of slavery and then, of course, uh, technological innovations like the cotton gin. I mean, the main reason that the first, the first ranks of uh, founding fathers thought that slavery was something that they could just put off was because they thought it was going to go away naturally in the near term because it wasn't really that profitable. It wasn't really like where it was where it was then where it was during the, the colonial and, and early uh, modern period before we expanded it really wasn't that profitable the soil was already getting depleted in in, in the tidewater uh, like George Washington even though he was the biggest landowner in Virginia he had to borrow 500 bucks to go to his own inaugural because he had a bad, bunch of bad harvests uh, even though he had huge you know slave plantations uh, and the, the margins just weren't good enough. It was cotton, and then the ability to to make cotton uh, labor uh, uh, labor to reduce the labor intensiveness of cotton to a point where you you could make more money make money off of it. Uh, that made it uh, a viable a long-term viable mode of production. And that's what changed the politics of slavery over time and blew up the constitutional order. So I would say that the Whiskey Rebellion, I don't think, it's proto-working class movement in that it has the form of popular, uh, uh, over, uh, 
It has the form of a popular resistance to oppression. The thing is, is that the, the axis of oppression then is not really the one that you see in a organized working class movement within a capitalist system, a fully integrated capitalist system, where the yeomanry, where the yeoman conception of liberty is not an overriding thing. Uh, and honestly, that's one of the chief hindrances of the American labor movement is the persistence of the yeoman conception of liberty. It has only been protested, that has been, uh, uh, that has persisted the way it has because of our dynamic of expansion that has governed our nation until very recently. Like you can say, oh, the frontier closed in the 1890s, yes, but that's when we started our colonial wars. And then very quickly, uh, we became the inheritors of a globe-spanning empire. It was, uh, I really think that the, the myth died with Iraq. Man, those fucking obelisks, one of the things that, we, that, that they've really taken from us is any ability to have any wonder about anything. Because no one could have seen that for a second and not immediately thought, oh, this is viral marketing for some bullshit. And maybe it isn't. Maybe it's not. Maybe there's nothing else that ever happens. It's like, hey, what was the deal with those obelisks? And we never find out. It's too late then. And it's all going to be a slow, like, there will never, there can be no collective intake of breath. Because everything we see, we inherently distrust, as we should. Oh, God, the clowns, guys! The clowns! Thank you for reminding me about the clowns. That was probably the one thing that more than anything should have told you that, in retrospect, that Trump was, was going to win. Not because he's orange, just because that kind of thing happening, people are, people are vibing on a weird... People are vibing. People are waiting for something. People are... They're tasting something in the air. Something's getting weird. And honestly, I wonder if the fact that Trump won stopped the clown thing. If it was just that clown, like him being president, diffused the energy that was turning into, that was expressing itself in, in weird clowns. And if Hillary had won, maybe the clown thing would have, have become a, like a real extended phenomenon involving body counts and, and, and uh, cults and shit. Or unless it was all viral marketing for it. Unless it was viral marketing for it. Because if it was, and they were cool about it, we never would have known. They weren't going to say, hey, this is for it. Because like, if they're really smart, they don't know. You, it's, you, you program them deeply enough, you don't have to make the connection. They'll make it for themselves. Yeah, it is the plot of the movie Joker. And I wonder if Trump being president didn't like divert, divert us from the Joker timeline, at least temporarily. Now with Biden getting back in here, and, and like the normal folk, the, the, the adults in the room again, does that mean the Jokerification is going to start back up? Are we going to start seeing clowns again? Clowns in uh, M95 masks? 
We'll see. After Inauguration Day, after Biden becomes president and doesn't get arrested by Michael Flynn, after they wave the servers around, uh, then I think you might see jokerfication intensifying. I am going to become the Joker. Damn right. Damn right you are. We all are. We're all going to be the Joker. Sooner or later. We're all getting Joker-fied. But no, I feel like I, I went through my Jokerfication phase and I came out the other end. And hopefully we'll, we'll come out of the other end collectively of our Jokerfication phase. Uh, feeling feeling like we're 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 changed, evolved, upward. Maybe. Fingers crossed. Oh God, Cuomo! I I I still think the funniest thing would be it's John Ossoff in 2024, because it's so nothing more perfectly democratic about a guy wasting. A fuck ton of money to lose a Senate, a House race. The most money I think anybody had ever lo lo used to lose a, a House race. Then taking another boatload of money and burning it, just burning it, flushing it down the toilet to lose twice the same Senate race. And then he gets the nomination as the president so that he can, like, end up spending $3 billion to lose to John Taffer or Larry the Cable Guy. Or Larry the Cable Guy and John Taffer strapped together like Master Blaster. That would be, that would be perfect. God, I gotta, I have this whole, I keep thinking that the 2024 Republican candidate, if it's not Trump, will be John Jr. And I know that everyone's like, and myself, I, I agree. He has none of his father's raw charisma or talent of any kind. He's a perfectly null fail son, the ideal fail son. Uh, but honestly, I think that takes that doesn't take into account how much stupider and more pathetic things are going to be in 2024. How much lower is everyone's expectation going to be of anything? And how much will the toad-like anti-charisma of Donald Jr. Uh, end up winning just by virtue of having some some transient trans, some uh, some transferred valor, some stolen uh, vibe from his dad compared to the fucking other wet dish rags who run against him. So yeah, we'll see. We'll see. I have a feeling. I mean, we'll see how we'll see how things are. Maybe they won't be so stupid. Maybe people will be less dumb. But hey. Ossoff versus Don Jr. I think could be an amazing election. Let's all let's all hope. Bye bye.